Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. Oh, pleasure, Kate. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to chat. Now, this episode is absolutely jam-packed with questions, so just for my listeners, you might need to pause and come back because there's going to be some great insights uh, into share investing in Australia today. And our guest expert today, Danny, has actually been working in the finance industry for three decades and now manages her own investment portfolio. So I've got her onto the podcast so we can really dive into share investing, which I know a lot of you have been sending me questions about, and I'm not an expert myself, so hopefully Danny can answer some of those questions for us today. Hopefully. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Danny, I'd love to hear a little bit about just your career in the finance industry and how you went about becoming a full-time investor. Probably worth starting with a little bit of history. I was brought up by my my mother and... um, you know, it's not a big sob story, but dad died when I was very young when they were divorced. And she invested in a share called Poseidon, which some people may know was one of the biggest stock bubbles ever in the Australian share market, which blew up spectacularly and lost investors a lot of money. This was in the late 1960s, early 70s, when I was actually quite young. Regrettably, my mother had put a lot of her savings into Poseidon under the persuasion, guidance, advice, whatever you want to call it, of her stockbroker. And despite her fears, concerns, et cetera, et cetera, he didn't sell and she lost pretty much all her savings, which when you've got a young child that's, you know, seven or eight years old, it had a huge detrimental effect on her mental and physical health for probably six months. And I think the importance of what I learned there, even though it was probably more subconscious rather than conscious time to manifest itself, is that it's so important that all of us have a degree of control and financial literacy so that we're never putting ourselves in a position where we suffer so dramatically from a financial loss. And I guess I have seen over the years, so many people that have suffered from poor financial advice. Going back to me, I very much was torn between pursuing a career in fine arts, because I love the arts, and actually doing something that was more practical. And when push came to shove when I left school, I decided it was better to be more practical. (laughs) So I pursued a university degree in commerce at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney that would set me up with a degree that was suitable for hopefully making me financially independent and also in the business world. So that was actually the first step to getting into stockbroking. I was very lucky. I applied to a small partnership, stockbroking partnership, in, I remember, 1985. 
And this was a time of great change where in the UK there was what was called the Big Bang, where there was this massive change in regulation that allowed for the amalgamation of banks and all the ancillary services that go into stockbroking to merge together. They all used to be separate entities. And this small firm in Australia, a small partnership of stockbrokers, which is typically how they used to be in the 1960s, 70s and early 80s, was being taken over by this giant called BZW, which is uh, basically Barclays. And then they had two other divisions, Desut and Wed Derlecker, but I won't go into that. So I pretty much joined at one of the most fortuitous periods in time where you had great change in the financial sector. There was also quite uh, booming stock markets and I became what is known as a research analyst. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, (laughs) The first few weeks were like an absolute initiation by fire uh, because I suddenly had to analyse companies that were listed on the stock exchange. And probably what is more amusing to the listeners is that um, as a woman, I had to analyse building materials companies. And that's how I basically started. I had to learn to, having done all the commerce degree where you learn about analysing balance sheets and profit and loss statements all those things. Now I actually had to put that into practice. And I'm sure some of you may appreciate what you learn at university can sometimes seem crossing the Nile when it actually comes to putting (laughs) it into practice and in the industry. So I made a fool of myself a few times, but thankfully my boss was very forgiving. And uh, I moved on to the transport sector, the food sector. And I did that for about four and a half years before I moved to London. So I was one of Australia's equity analysts in one of the largest firms for institutional investors here in Australia. So to put that into layman's speak, I was one of those people that would analyse companies like Boral, T&T, Brambles, and I would then provide the input into the salespeople who would then advise some of the big clients around town. So AMP, for example. So all the companies where individual investors have their money. And uh, that's what I did in Australia before I moved on to London. So do you want to know about what happened over in London or shall we skip that part? (laughs) Oh, we can skip that part. Um, And I I was just sort of interested in how you ended up becoming a full-time investor because that's quite a different leaping out of working your nine-to-five, invest researching for other people to actually doing it for yourself. Yeah. Okay. It's it's worth pointing out that in London, I actually transitioned to doing institutional sales, which is slightly different. And I also moved from Australia to emerging markets. How I then transitioned to running my own money, it's due to personal circumstances. I actually retired from the industry just at a point when I could have actually moved um, up the corporate ladder, but I wanted to have my son and be a full-time carer for him. And regrettably, when the marriage didn't work out and I returned back here to Australia, I was in a position where I made had to make a choice between going back full time into the industry, which is not a nine to five industry. It's more a, you know, 12 hour day or trying to manage my own money and become a full time mum. And that's actually what I chose. Uh, I started originally because I had lost some of my confidence for various reasons and I farmed out my money to professional fund managers here in Sydney. 
Uh, I tried a few and by the start of the GFC in 2008, I, I pretty much had had enough and I said, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to take control of my money myself because I know myself better than anybody else. Mm. And uh, I think that I can do a better job trying to achieve what I want to achieve than any professional manager. So that was good 12, 13 years ago that I just took control. Yeah, absolutely. And and this has since led you to actually writing a book about your, your process to share investing, share plicity. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I've always had a dream to write a to write a book, and um, it seemed the best pathway to achieving that goal, and also sharing all my knowledge with other people. Because I think it is really hard for the person in the street to understand what share investing is about, what investing for yourself is all about, and how to differentiate between all the information that's out there. And I wish I had a book like mine, dare I say, when I started (laughs) out, as I keep on saying to my son, who's 19, who's becoming involved in shares, once he finishes this uh, semester's university exams, he's actually going to read the book. And I say, it will make it a lot easier. The pieces of the puzzle will start to fall into place. And that's what I wanted to achieve with Shareplicity is really make a book that people could understand that was simple but not simplistic. Yeah, because it often, it, share investing often seems like this elite club that only a certain group of people can be a part of. And if you don't have all the background, the connections, the knowledge, it's really hard to break into that group. Yeah, I guess it's very, it has been traditionally for the wealthy, everybody would say, oh, I have my own private advisor and he tells me what to do. But it has changed dramatically with technology. I mean, technology is fantastic for the small investor. You now have online platforms that you can trade your shares or your ETF products. And you also are starting to get other products in terms of automated advice for investors. Um, I'm just in the process of um, learning more about that. But it means with technology that the smaller investor, the person in the street, can actually start investing, saving for the future, and you don't have to have large amounts of money, and it's not going to cost you a lot of money. And this is a huge change from the days when my mother invested or even, you know, in the 80s and the the 90s. The 2000s have really heralded a lot of change. Mm. And investing is more accessible than ever for, for new people to get started and get into. And I really wanted to sort of dive in with you to what are some of the foundational skills that you would suggest understanding before buying direct shares? Because I've talked a lot about ETFs on this podcast. And I know a lot of young people are starting to embrace ETFs and then shares seems like that next big step. So what are the, some of the things you should learn before diving in? Uh, yeah, apart from reading the book. <laughs> Sorry, Gates, I couldn't help myself. No, no uh, to be serious. The one thing that people really don't understand is when you buy a share, you're actually buying a share of a company, a percentage of a company. So people always think about as a share is as just a price on this abstract market that trades each day. But behind that price, behind that share is a real company doing real things with real managers and a business. 
And that is what you have to think. When you go in to buy a share, you are buying into a business, be it Commonwealth Bank, be it BHP, some of the big names that that people will have heard of. So when you invest, you have to understand that these companies um, are like your own household, for example. They have different characteristics. They have different features. Some are much better quality than others. And it really depends once you learn to identify that a company is not only different in terms of business that it operates in the sector that it operates, but the corporate cultures are very different. There's a huge difference between investing in an, an, an Atlassian, which is an amazing tech success from here in Australia, to investing in an old style company. I mean, you're talking about millennials that are changing the world versus the old guard that have been doing the same thing for 50 or 60 years. So one thing is the corporate culture. The next thing that you need to understand is how these companies actually make money. And companies can be part of cyclical markets, okay? That's markets that go up and down. So let's have a look at housing sector. You have the housing sector, which is booming, and then the housing market comes comes off and hopefully doesn't crash. Or you have the iron ore market or the oil market booms. And then you have periods like now where the oil market crashes. And then you have what I call long-term secular growth markets. And I think that's one of the special spaces that we can discuss a little bit more in the podcast about long-term growth of businesses that are actually changing the way the world works. So the first thing investors need to do is work out what they are trying to achieve for themselves. The next thing is to understand which type of businesses you want to invest in and the reasons that you want to invest in them. Absolutely. And I I think it, it really comes back to knowing what you personally value and how you can invest in line with that because that makes it so much easier to stay, I think, engaged and interested with what you're doing. Absolutely. I can't emphasize enough how important it is when one starts is to understand what you're trying to achieve. And everybody's going to have a different amount of money to invest. They're going to have a different time goal. They're going to have what's called different risk tolerance. How much can you watch shares go down? So you don't necessarily generate a real loss, but you have a paper loss when you look at the share price. And everybody is very different. To give you a quick example, my son goes, I keep on saying to him, stop worrying about the short-term movements in the stock market because it's quite volatile at the moment as in share prices are going up and down a lot. I said, you're 19. Once you start working full-time, you're going to have some, some money that you can save into the share market. You've got money coming into it over a period of time. You can afford to invest and just close your eyes if you buy really good companies that you think have growth for the next 10 years. Now, his, the way he can invest is very different to someone like me who has had to live off my savings, create or maintain the money pool that is there without seeing it, you know, get totally smashed like my mother. 
So it very much, you have to sit down first off and be, have an honest look at yourself in the mirror and you say, what am I trying to do here? Am I saving for a deposit? Am I saving for my kid's education? Am I saving for a holiday? Do I want to be a trader? Like, do I love hearing those hot tips and want to race into the market and try and get a hot tip? Or am I trying to create wealth for the longer term? Yeah, and it's it's very interesting when you hear from new investors that have only sort of looked at Reddit or Twitter for their stock research and advice. It's very different sort of mindset um, in terms of that if, if you're thinking long-term or those quick wins. Yeah, that's very much um, what we called it's for the traders and it's momentum plays. Momentum means you follow a trend or there's an expression in the industry called the trend is your friend. But, you know, the problem is, is that the little person in the street is looking at these feeds coming through and they go, oh, oh, that share's going up, I'll hop on board. But the problem is the person that actually put it on the Twitter feed might actually decide the next day to start selling after you've just bought it and you'll never know. Yeah, and I think people don't realise that often people are promoting particular stocks and companies because maybe they want to get out of their position and they actually want the price to go up so they can sell. Correct. It's very wise to be cynical. I think one of the advantages that I have is that I'm not running anybody else's money. I don't have an agenda. I'm not related to an um, investment firm or a stockbroking firm because one always has to say, why is this fund manager pushing this stock? And um, I've fallen prey to that. I mean, it's amazing. You go, oh, they really like this. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, that looks good. And then you read two weeks later that they'd exited the position. And meanwhile, <laughs> you're about to be holding the baby in the bathwater. <laughs> yeah. And um, you get stuck with things you might not have wanted in the first place. Yeah, basically that's, that's it. So it's really important. Work out what you're trying to achieve. You're better to focus on a small amount of shares and have a vision of where what you want your money to do for you. So rather than being a slave to the market, you can control your outcomes a little bit. Absolutely. Now, in your book, you highlight that um, share investors can become bogged down in the details of the macro picture. So what are some of these friction points that you think are distracting your investors? I think you've got a really good example at the moment where we've got a huge, huge divergence between what's happening in the real world and what share markets are doing. And I have to put my hand up. I got it wrong at the beginning. What I mean by this is that we have one of the worst recessions that probably most people will have experienced. We've got rising unemployment. We've got businesses that are struggling. We've got too many people that have had to go on to JobKeeper, but thank gosh we have JobKeeper. It's saving us. And yet we have an, a stock market that is rallying, rallying, going up really, really quickly. And I guess the problem is, is that, you know, this is a big dilemma for a lot of investors. A lot of us follow, have been trained to follow what we call macro fundamentals. And macro is basically about the economy. That's inflation, how much prices go up, interest rates, what the Reserve Bank is doing, unemployment levels, levels of government expenditure, think JobKeeper or infrastructure spending. And we listen to the experts, so-called experts, the economists, and sometimes you walk away and you just want to jump off a cliff and slit your, <laughs> slit your wrists. 
And in this instance, and I've seen it happen really post the GFC, we've got this new norm where the global central banks led by the Federal Reserve in America have had to underwrite liquidity, so the amount of cash in the system to keep businesses and keep the economy going. And the other thing that I have underestimated is the amount of, I suppose, innovation, ingenuity, animal spirits, people actually adapting as quickly as they can to their circumstances that they've been presented with and wanting to make the best out of it. And I think these animal spirits, if you want to call them that, the optimism, the glass half full, is what we are seeing now with investing, as well as this wall of money. So if we bring it back to you, the investor, if you've saved some some cash that you've got sitting in the bank, and hopefully you're not having to spend it all at this point in time, you're looking and you go, oh my gosh, I'm getting nothing from the bank for having my money on deposit. So you start to look and you go, well, where am I going to put that money? Wouldn't I want to put it into something that can at least generate me maybe 1% or 2% in income, maybe 3 maybe 4%? And what if that asset or that share actually was, had an improving growth prospect and you could actually, the share might go up 5%. So before you know it, you might have actually made anything from 5 to 10% in your money, which has got to look a lot better than sitting in cash and deposit in the bank. So I think sometimes we just have to be a little bit careful of spending too much time reading about what is happening in the economy on the front page of the newspapers, which quite frankly can be extremely depressing. Yeah, and I, I often sort of point out to people that they should read different sources because you read two different websites or newspapers on the same day and they'll they'll use one fact but they'll pull the completely opposite idea totally. out of it yeah. <laughs> like the world's ending or the world's getting better than ever so it's um you've always got to look at multiple sources and especially with news because they the aim is to get clicks so they're going to put headlines that catch your attention yeah a bit of shock and awe and that's the thing it all comes down to expectations so This is, I think, one of the hardest things for investors to understand is that the stock market is forward-looking. It doesn't look in the past. It looks to the future. So it's about that company that's going to make more money or have a higher growth projection in the future. And if I said to you that even though the economy, you know, is, is struggling as much as it is, but it's actually not as bad as what some of the forecasters were saying, then immediately you have a more upbeat tone in the share market because the expectation was depression, you know, we're going back to the 1930s. But because of what the central banks have done, so the Reserve Bank here, the Federal Reserve in the US, the European Central Bank, they have pushed so much money into the system. They have let, been able to facilitate companies with a lot of debt to borrow more, to restructure their debt. And then the governments have come in and provided payments for people who are then in a position to hopefully ride out these awful circumstances. So fingers crossed, we are now in a position where 
not only is the recession maybe not going to be as bad, but it also we have the potential to come out of it more quickly than what some people thought. And I, I guess that's really the hope at the moment. I, it was looking a lot of doom and gloom in March um, this year, March and April, but it seems like I, I definitely feel a more optimistic vibe in Australia at the moment. Yeah, and one of the things that, um, and this is, this is again relevant for new investors, it's only with hindsight that we can see what actually happened in March. So there's some big investors called hedge funds. You'll hear about these hedge funds. What are these strange hedge funds? They're institutions which basically run other people's money, large, large lumps of money, and they can borrow. And they had done a few trades. They had borrowed to do a trade over in the US and they got very unstuck when the pandemic broke out and we had to go into lockdown. Stuck in, as in they couldn't sell their positions. So they actually forced this global liquidity event, as in there was not enough liquidity, where everybody started to sell all at once. And that is why the share market absolutely collapsed over the course of March. It was one of the fastest, um, most aggressive falls since the 1987 crash. And if we all had that knowledge in hindsight and we all knew that the Fed would come in and say, don't worry, we're the white knight, we're going to come here and save the system, which is basically what they did and they have done on a few occasions, uh, we all could have stood there with our fingers on the, on the buy buttons on March 23rd, <laughs> which was the bottom of the market. So what I'm trying to say for investors is if you understand that sometimes these events have there's a disconnect between the reality of what's going on and some very silly big institutions that got themselves into trouble. And we're now in a position where central banks just cannot let these big institutions go bust. Yeah, I guess it's that sort of saying something's too big to fail. Exactly. Like Australia definitely doesn't want any of its large financial institutions to go under. Absolutely. And that's very different to understand the new normal that we're in. I worked at a bank in the UK, Bearings, that was allowed to go under and it was allowed to go under because it didn't threaten the financial system. However, there have been lots of other cases of big institutions where they've had to step in and not let them go under. And I think we're now in much safer pair of hands when you look at the central banks around the world. Mm, I guess you hope it doesn't with all these protections for these large institutions, they don't take unnecessary risks with the, the capital knowing that they'll be bailed out. Ah, oh, yes. That's another <laughs> that's long a, story. That's another day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think we'll leave that one go through to the yeah. keeper. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, one of the big things for new investors is knowing that past performance doesn't equal future performance and every firm will plaster that on their website and their legal sections. If you go to a talk, it'll be in the disclaimer. And that's really hard to get as a new investor because when you're trying to judge something, you are looking at the historic performance, especially you're looking at the historic performance of shares and ETFs. So um, what are some of the things that share investors should be looking out for the coming decade, some of the different trends to look out for? Okay. Two points. When fund managers say that past performance is not a prediction for future performance, that's absolutely right. They're normally doing that just so investors understand to cover their own position. And what you will often find is that with these managed products, 
when they invest, you get a fund manager that will perform really well for maybe one, two, three years, at best five, (laughs) and then they kind of fall by the wayside. What I think you'd like to know, Kate, is how is the world changing? What are some of the things that not only myself that I'm thinking about, but people that are far more intelligent than me? And I think let's start very briefly with the whole concept of lower interest rates. Interest rates have been falling since the early 1980s or around the 1980s they started to fall. And we're now in a position where interest rates are pretty much zero. And because now there is so much global debt and we have lots of changes in society from ageing populations, demographics, we have huge technological change. All of these factors really mean that interest rates are going to stay longer at a lower level than a lot of people anticipate. And I th- that is one of the premises that I discuss in the book. And I think it's really important to understand that interest rates are not going up to the times, I mean, probably not even to 4 or 5% that we had a few years ago, let alone the 17% that we had in the early 1980s. So if you have an environment where interest rates are very low, it actually changes the type of business models that do well. And since even though we had technology companies emerging with the internet in the late 1980s and then we had the tech bubble of 2000, technology trends have actually just accelerated. And you have seen that post the GFC. And you've actually seen it more as a result of the pandemic. So companies like Zoom, which everybody's probably aware of, have just benefited no end. The great, the big internet companies of Amazon, Facebook, all of those are actually consolidating their positions. There's new areas. You've obviously got the Netflix, the streaming of entertainment. You've now got tele-healthcare companies. Um, Again, some of this happens, it's a little bit more easy to identify in America than it is in Australia. But all these big companies have been big, big money makers for investors. And this has been to the detriment of those investors that have held traditional stocks. So I'm talking oil and gas stocks. I'm talking the banks. I'm talking some of the traditional retailing companies. So, for example, the David Joneses and the Myers over in the US, you've got, you know, the JC Pennies, you've got the big like stores like DJs that have really suffered. So the whole bricks and mortar retail model has been put under pressure. And I truly, truly believe that with this low interest rate environment, the business model has shifted from fixed assets so the, the companies like the car companies that took over the world in the 1920s and then again post-World War II, those companies have increasingly come under pressure because at the end of the day, people just can't keep on buying cars. Instead, you're getting these transformational business models, be it with Uber or Tesla or driverless cars. So I think They're often referred to um, some of these technology companies as weightless companies, which means they have fewer fixed assets. So I'm talking bricks, mortar, manufacturing facilities, and they have more intellectual property and they invest a lot more. 
And um, I think for investors now, this is will continue. This this growth in this sector is not going to go away anytime soon. So when you hear advisors saying, you know, we we like to go back and just buy the bank shares and we like to buy resource shares, that's absolutely fine. I'm not saying you can't do that, but you have to understand the reason why you are doing it. And if it's for a short term revaluing of the company. Um, as we've seen in the last week with a lot of buying in the Australian bank shares? Or do you want to actually pick companies that are going to change the world like Netflix has in terms of streaming? So Netflix was the top performer in the US market in the last decade. And take you on that journey where you can turn $1,000 into $50,000 over a period of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we often get distracted in Australia by our love of dividends, which is quite unique in our market. And we forget about what are the companies we're actually using and paying for all the time. Like we're all using Netflix and we're all using Uber and Amazon and Facebook. And I think, yeah, we sometimes get disjointed between the companies of the future and the companies of the past almost. Absolutely. And and that's a really good point. Um, We will come to dividends, I think. But you have to understand that these companies make a deliberate decision not to make as much profit because they're constantly reinvesting. So Netflix is is one example where they still don't make any money and they're borrowing huge amounts at very low rates to make amazing content. But they have only accelerated their model throughout the pandemic. And this, this pandemic, we actually don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully we're going to have a vaccine and hopefully we will have ways to cure it, more efficient ways. But at the end of the day, the pandemic has structurally, has the potential to structurally change the way we all do operate in our lives. Um, more of us might decide that we, we can and we want to work at home, maybe two out of three days. And there are changes taking place. And just, just on those other changes, I think it's really important to bear in mind that there's a couple of other, few other big trends. So we've got low interest rates, we've got technological disruption, politics and populism, very big thing. Just keep an eye out for that. How it can manifest itself is, is obviously in trade wars, as we've seen with China and the US. And the other one, uh, we've seen it with the Royal Banking Commission. Thank God we did have it, but it probably was a push, a pushback from the little person that we need to be looked after. The other things that are really important is climate change risk. And I don't want to go into the debate about whether it's happening, not happening, real, not real. But the point is at a financial level, every big financial firm on Wall Street is taking it very seriously and the banks are taking it very seriously and the insurance companies are taking it very seriously. So as an investor, you also need to keep that on your radar because if the big boys are doing it, you want to do it as well. And last but not least, which kind of encapsulates all of this, is the growth in ESG investing or environmental social governance. And this is particularly being embraced by the younger investors. They want to put their money to to use in a way that can hopefully not only change the world in a positive way, but also they feel good about what they're investing in, but they're also really good companies. Yeah. And I think that's that sort of changing mindset with my demographic, especially. We want to 
invest for the future, but we also want to invest in companies that are going to do good things for our future as well. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that the ESG sector and the money going into it throughout the whole coronavirus stock market crash, it barely flinched. The market, the, the money kept on coming in. And I think hopefully a lot of younger investors have seen through this crash, unlike maybe some of the older ones, and said, wow, we've just had the best opportunity to come in and buy some of the shares that we we want to own or we really love or the ETF that gives us exposure to the shares that we think will change the world. Now, one of the things investors and funds often toss around in terms of terminology is whether they're growth or value investors. And certainly as someone new and starting out, I had no idea what they were talking about. I mean, don't you always want your um, shares to grow? So Are you able to talk a little bit about what these investing styles are and why you might, why people sort of go towards one or the other? Yeah, gosh, this is, this is the the strangest thing. Like I grew up probably being taught, you know, when I was a, you know, a research analyst as a value investor, you bought cheap, cheap is good. (laughs) You want the deal and cheap is, or value is classified as a low price to earnings ratio. Okay. Low. And it has a good dividend. Growth, although that has existed many times over the history of share markets, growth is basically what it destri- describes. It's companies that generate above average earnings growth, but trade on much higher multiples. So you only have to think in Australia, if we take uh, value you think of the traditional bank shares, maybe including excluding Commonwealth Bank and Macquarie. You think of the resource companies. You think of the building materials companies. You think of some retailers. And then you have growth. You have the healthcare stocks, so CSL, ResMed, Cochlear. You think of the technology shares here in Australia, Zero, Appen, Altium, Technology One. And they're very distinct. And it is the most uh, divisive argument between professional investors. Some doggedly sit in value and just refuse to move. And unfortunately, they've been the losers over the past 12 years. Value investing is very much related to reflation trades. They're often cyclical stocks. Reflation means higher interest rates, higher inflation. But we basically haven't seen that. And the growth companies, as we've just discussed, have just, you know, gone from strength to strength to strength. What I think for the person in the street, what you want to try and achieve is actually you buy growth when it's cheap, if that makes sense. (laughs) So let's have a uh, look at uh, CSL, which is now Australia's largest company by market cap. CSL is currently being sold down partly because it's rotational selling, partly because there's a bit of a rumour about a competitor in the globulin market, which is their main, their main product, blood plasma, and they're the largest in the world. And so it is going to represent, if you know that company, if you understand the company, if you believe in the management and the quality of the company, the periods when CSL or ResMed or Cochlear are sold off are actually good entry points into these expensive companies. Conversely, what you've seen in the last week is everybody buying the bank shares because everybody decided they were just 
too cheap. <laughs> so we'll go in and we'll buy them. And it's the value stocks rallying because everybody thinks they're going, there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. We don't know. We hope it'll be a V-shaped. But you have to question, are the banks really going to be the winners five years down the track? Or is it the growth shares, the healthcare companies that are going to continue to do well? So it's a, it's a really tricky concept for, for new investors to get hold of. And it goes back to that thing. Are you trying to build a portfolio that's going to let you sleep well at night, that is going to go for five, 10 years and make you real wealth? Or do you want to pop on a cheap value stock and get a pop in the share price and then get out really quickly? My personal, what I do, I try and look for, for the growth at good level, good entry levels that is actually going to continue to do well over the longer term. I find that I just muck up when I try and buy cheap shares the amount or value shares the amount of times I've got blown up <laughs> buying a value share. I don't even <laughs> want to talk about It's like, oh, that looks cheap. And then I had one that actually just went completely bust on me. And it was one of Australia's largest contractors um, called RCR Tomlinson. So my personal experience does not lend well to buying value or cheap stocks. And I guess sometimes companies are really cheap for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's one thing when you go, oh, gee, this looks cheap. It's like, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person that gets sucked into a good sale and there's a lot of good sales on at the moment. And I came home yesterday and my son goes, what have you bought? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, they're really great. Well, this morning I go, uh-uh, they're going back. What was I mm. thinking? And just be careful of the good sale, the bargain price, the dividend yield is so high. Gosh, I must get some of that because when it seems too good to be true, I hate to say it, it normally is too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you was a little bit about the financial jargon that we hear on the news um, and the finance reports and in the papers and some of the common terms like price to earnings ratio and fundamental analysis. So are you able to explain what some of these jargony terms mean? I'll give it a good stab. Um, try to <laughs> not take too long. So there's an example in the book, which I am so thankful to my dear partner, who when we were discussing this, he goes, why don't you use the example of a vineyard, a vine? Okay, so when you plant a vine, it grows. And the more it grows, the more beneficial it is to you. So it gets more stalks and stems. Okay. So when you buy a company, you want it to grow. You want it to have more stalks and stems. And that is basically the earnings. So the more stalks and stems that you get for the price you paid, the better off you are. And in show price terms, uh, the PER is the price of a share divided by the earnings per share, how much earnings that you get per share. So it's, it's basically an indication that if I buy this share, it will take 10 years of earnings to get back in the price that I paid. That's an indication of how expensive it is. If your vine is producing a lot of grapes, they're the dividends. So the more grapes that your vine produces and the more stalks and stems that your vine produces, 
the better off you are. And so the dividend and the yield per share is basically when you buy a share, it's the income you receive from the share, which is the amount of cash that the company gives back to you for each share you own, divided by the price that you pay. And you basically say at this point in time in our current economic environment, uh, gross companies will pay zero to maybe a 2% dividend yield. Then you have other shares like infrastructure stocks, so the Transurbans, the Sydney airports, the Atlas Arteria, maybe the banks, some of the property trusts. Now, when they start paying dividends, again, some of them have had to stop because they just haven't had enough earnings due to the, the lockdowns. They probably will yield you of somewhere between 35 to 5%. And that is the big difference in terms of price earning multiples. The lower the multiple, when you buy the share, the cheaper it is. The higher the multiple, the more expensive. But as I've discussed, that's a little bit of a grey zone when it comes to growth companies because they trade at a higher PER multiple. They're the two main ones that you need to know. Um, other fundamentals that are really important is, is understanding the amount of debt that a company has, and that is usually expressed as debt to shareholders' funds or equity as a percentage. Um, again, you find some businesses traditionally run much higher levels of debt and they are intensive capital companies, which are probably sometimes in the resources sector or banks actually are very highly geared, which people forget. But debt in an absolute sense is not that bad. It's the cash flow to cover it. So I, when I talk about this, I want people to think about their own personal positions. When you take out a mortgage, you want to be sure that you have an, a definite amount of income to cover not only your mortgage or your interest payments on your credit cards or whatever debt you have, plus enough to live off. And companies are basically the same as that. So really the main financials that you need to understand when looking at companies, you'll hear analysts talk about price to earnings ratios, dividend yields debt ratios, as well as possibly cash flow. Absolutely. So now that we've got some of the jargon out of the way, what are some of the red flags that investors should be looking out for when they're sort of researching a company? Okay. Uh, really briefly, it's, it's debt, debt and debt. <laughs> um, <laughs> companies need to, to grow. Uh, they can do it two ways. They can fund it from borrowing money or they can actually fund it from their own internal cash flows or they can issue shares. And it's always a fine balancing act for every, every company. So as I discussed earlier with Netflix, they've got a lot of debt, but they've also got, you know, big cash flow coming in. So debt in isolation is not a bad thing. I discussed in the book a couple of examples of two companies but both made acquisitions, both took on a lot of debt. Problem was, is one, when they took over the acquisition, what the business that they bought did not generate enough income to cover the costs of the debt, and they've actually gone bust. The other company did generate enough. So let's say, to use your own personal example again, if you decided that you wanted to buy an investment property, let's say, but you spent too much and let's say the tenants suddenly couldn't provide enough of cover for the mortgage and you ended up having to sell it and you lost money on it or worse still, you actually kind of you know, lost everything. That's what I'm, I'm basically talking about here. So red flags, 
are companies that potentially grow very aggressively, they borrow lots of money, and their cash flow starts to sink. Other examples that when you look at corporate governance, you see companies borrowing money to pay dividends or issuing a lot more shares to pay dividends. That's not very good. Other things that you can see is if they start issuing shares to specific parties within the business and not the minority shareholders, which are people like us. Absolutely. And they're definitely good things to keep an eye out. Now, the final question I wanted to ask you in today's episode is that in your book, Shareplicity, you talk about finding all-star shares. So what are some of the attributes of these type of companies that we should be looking out for? The all-stars are what I call quality companies or the companies that you can sleep well with at night. Again, this is quite a subtle feature and and people find it hard to understand. All I can say is that having been doing this now for over three decades and even in the emerging markets when I used to advise clients, they were the quality companies and they were the cheap, not so great companies. I actually checked when I was writing Shareplicity whether those same companies that I used to recommend to investors in the 90s were still the best companies in places like Philippines and Indonesia, which I used to broke, and the answer was yes. So what are the characteristics? Very important that they have what's called a strong competitive advantage, or Warren Buffett talks about the moat, and this is basically all the elements of the company that make it very defensive against competitors because every business that's doing well is going to have competitors popping out of the woodwork. That's just the way markets work. But the ones that actually survive are the ones that actually can keep on keeping on as the best. Those competitive advantages include things like pricing power, so they're price makers, not price takers. They have strong supply chains. So we've known in the pandemic how many times we go, people have said, well, we actually don't know when we're going to have that in stock again. They have the ability to generate very high levels of cash flow and they put that into research and development for the future. Really, really big point. One of the problems with some of our great Aussie companies, the names that we all know, and I'm talking about the banks and even Telstra, is that they have not invested enough for the future. They've paid it out in dividends. And whilst that's been good for a whole lot of investors, it hasn't actually been good for the company and good for the disruption, the technological change that they're now being hit with. The other most important point is you, the the investor, you want your cash dividends and you want them to grow. The really good companies grow their dividend payments over time. And it means if you bought a share some of them 10 years ago, it means that the dividend yield now, because they've been able to grow the dividends year in and year out, can be very high. They can be 20%, 30%. And that's what you want from a really good company is that ability to pay you the cash dividend. But I'm not talking about you're getting a high yield of 6% this year, and then you hope to get it next year, and then you hope to get it next year. 
only to be disappointed when they actually say, well, awfully sorry, we've just had a pandemic or awfully sorry the housing market (laughs) just went bust. Oops, we can't pay you a dividend. No, 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 no. You don't want that. (laughs) You want the company that you know is going to, at the very least, pay the same as last year. But hopefully increase it. And to give you an example, Technology One actually increased their latest dividend payment by 10% in the latest results. And you could probably count on your two hands any companies that are actually increasing their dividends at this point in time. It's quite rare right now. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's this false economy that you know, you, you look and you go, oh, I really, really want that, that big dividend payment. But you, all of us need to question, is, is, is it sustainable? And you want to buy into a business that has the capacity to make the dividend payments sustainable over time. Absolutely. Well, Danny, thank you so much for all of that information. And I hope that people get so much value from it. And we're actually going to have you back for a a bonus episode. So if you've liked today's episode, there's going to be a bonus listener question, quick fire round episode coming up afterwards. Thanks, Kate. No worries. So if people want to find a little bit more about you, Danny, and your book, Shareplicity, where should they go? I have a website called shareplicity.com.au and it is, uh, has the book. It has the first chapter, chapter available to download. Uh, you can buy the book from the website as well. And I will be uploading next week a number of media pieces, articles that I've been writing for investors that I think everyone might find quite interesting because they are all relevant to the stock market currently. And uh, there's also another interview and hopefully your podcast as well, Kate, will go up there. So yeah, shareplicity.com.au. And I really hope the book is very much designed that hopefully you can get through it, you know, of an afternoon or maybe two afternoons and it doesn't bog you down in heavy, heavy jargon and complexity that quite frankly makes me want to go to sleep. And um, I can only say that from the feedback that I'm actually getting from people is that one of the features about the book that they love the most is that I intertwine from beginning to end things that are important. I give really simple examples, but also too, I'm incredibly honest about, you know, what I've done wrong and what actually works. And I've got case studies in there as well for investors that they might find interesting to understand how I actually look at a company when I make the decision to buy or sell it. Wow, amazing. So I'll have the sh- in the show notes, the details to the website, if you want to get your hands on Danny's book. Danny, thank you so much for your effort today. It was it was a long episode, but thanks for sticking with me and um, coming on the show. That's all right. Thank you. I should probably just say though, for the publisher also has it available, Major Street Publishing, and it'll actually it's in bookstores. I think starting this weekend, Dimmicks. If your bookstore hasn't got it in, please ask. Um, and I think it's also available on Amazon and Booktopia, and there are eBooks available. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure there's links to those sites in the show notes so people can get their hands on that. Lovely. Thank you, Kate. All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Danny. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciated it. Absolutely. Thanks, Danny. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. 
If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.